Homeless Link is the national membership charity for frontline homelessness services. We work to improve services through research, guidance and learning, and campaign for policy change that will ensure everyone has a place to call home and the support they need to keep it. In this series of the Going Beyond podcast, we will discuss the effects of working in the homelessness sector on individual well-being, looking at managing stress, burnout, the effects of vicarious trauma, and the importance of debriefing and reflective practice. In each episode, we will speak to a guest who will tell us about their expertise, provide practical tips for improving well-being, and discuss the realities of working in the sector. I'm Jo Turner, National Practice Development Project Manager at Homeless Link, and I'll be your host. We hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we will be speaking with Ben Neal, organisational consultant and coach who supports those who work with individuals with complex needs. We will discuss why people come to work in the homelessness sector and how this plays out in the way they deliver their work, looking at how our boundaries are often pushed when working in this sector. Okay, welcome Ben, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me to be here. No worries. Thank you so much uh, for being here today for our Going Beyond podcast. So we're also joined by my colleague, Joe. Uh, yes, another Joe, Head of National Practice Development at uh, Homeless Link. Welcome, Joe. It's really great to have you. Hi, I'm really pleased to be here. Um, and hi, Ben, as well. Hi, Joe. <laughs> so just as a starter, Ben, for the listeners, it would be great if you could tell us a bit about yourself, what you do and perhaps kind of your area of expertise. Yeah, sure. So I work as an independent organisational consultant uh, and a coach. And I also do quite a lot of teaching as well on um, both coaching trainings and consultancy, organisational consultancy trainings. And I've done that since about 2010. Um, And a lot of that work is working not directly with clients so much, but with staff and managers and organisations who work with very deprived um, clients so lots of work in homelessness type organizations um, work with people who are quite damaged and struggling either through addiction or or mental health Um, but as I say I don't work directly with the clients so much but I do a lot of work with um, staff and leaders um, trying to help people understand um, the impact of that kind of work try to work on uh, what can go wrong and the challenges Um, I'm trying to help people kind of navigate these really quite difficult environments, which can be quite sort of bewildering and and not straightforward at times, Um, because not only do people have to contend with what comes through the clients uh, into their own sort of personal space and life and and work role, but also the systems that they're kind of um, nested in, um, which are often quite complex and not straightforward as well, as well as sort of environmental and political climates all of which sort of impact on the role and and the way people take up their jobs. Um, Prior to that, I worked for 20 years in the the National Health Service, working uh, in mental health services. And two years of that was working um, street outreach, mental health provision in Camden and Islington. So I had a lot of experience of sort of sort of real sort of hard edge frontline work before I moved into a more consultative uh, role which is which is what I do now. Amazing thank you so much so so in this series we've been discussing the effects of working in the homelessness sector on individual well-being um, especially in the sector it's incredibly important to have strong boundaries in the workplace but actually I think for a lot of people sometimes these boundaries can slip and that can ultimately lead to burnout 
So firstly, Ben, I wanted to ask you, why do you think people end up working in the homelessness sector? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I, th- I think there's different levels to it. I think quite often there's sort of a lot of sort of quite good, conscious, rational kind of um, reasons. Um, you know, people want to help. People want to give something back. People want to sort of do good. And lot, lots of people, particularly young people, have a sort of strong sort of social justice agenda of one sort or another. And, and people are also looking for meaning, something meaningful. Um, and meaning is very important in work. You know, we can think of different different domains, um, such as achievement, enjoyment, learning, meaning, and, and all of them are important. If, if one of those is kind of really missing, people can start to struggle. But I think meaningfulness is, is, is up there. But to go a little bit deeper than that, I would also, um, and thinking in a sort of psychodynamic, through a sort of psychodynamic, psychoanalytic lens we can also consider unconscious reasons that people might choose a given career or a given pathway and with most people if you investigate um, or look hard enough or people look themselves or reflect enough they'll find that there are actually things in their biography things in their history which are actually key motivators um, which have brought them to the role um, and in the unconscious, there's often a sense that something can be repaired, something on a sort of personal level can be repaired or modified um, or realised um, through kind of repetitively kind of working through these kind of roles in these kinds of environments. And it's really important. It has, lo- it, it, it has lots of sort of quite important ramifications, you know, particularly when you're talking about sort of boundaries and overworking and so on. Um, and for example, one of the things that I found really striking when I started doing a lot of work with with staff and managers in homelessness settings was how guilty everyone felt all the time. It seemed to be a, a, almost ubiquitous that people kind of had these strong feelings of guilt all the time. Uh, and I think it, it's because of those sort of more sort of inner reasons. Um, and it's it's so sort of common and it's never written about, it's never on the job description, you know, must be able to tolerate strong feelings of guilt for sustained periods of time, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it is a part of the work, you know. And so, and I think for that reason, sometimes people join um, and and do a bit and then something is resolved or they feel they've done enough and they move on, you know, which is absolutely fine. But for other people, there's a real need. They just, they'll stay doing these sorts of roles, you know, for their whole, for their whole careers. But I mean, I'll just say one more one more sort of thing on this before we move on. I think it becomes it's a real vulnerability um, in many ways. It's it's a very good thing in lots of ways, and it's good for the clients, it's good for the systems, and it's good for the person. But because there's an aspect of the work which is very very personal and very important on a personal level, which might not be conscious, um, I think people can get very easily caught up in this is this is my responsibility and a failure of a service or a failure of a client to improve um, becomes a failure of me or a failure of my abilities um, or something that I haven't done or can't do or aren't able to do and it is particularly important if a client dies for example or if there's a very serious sort of incident is there's a there's a um, the, the issue or the problem gets held on a personal level um, rather than being held on a systemic level, which it always should be. This is a, a, a group responsibility. It's a systemic responsibility, not an individual responsibility. But people can very easily get caught up in this kind of personal kind of responsibility, quite often for reasons that they're not fully aware of. 
which is, I think, specific to this kind of role and other kinds of roles, but that you don't find quite so much in other types of work. You know, and so sometimes it, it, you know, it's catastrophic for someone, you know, if they're too close or too close too often to, to what could be considered sort of um, failures or, or, or just the sort of constant um, inability to help to a degree which seems meaningful. Yeah. That's really interesting. Actually, in the first episode uh, with the series, we, we spoke with Nick McGuire and we spoke a bit about um, that feeling of having failed in, in your work and having that real responsibility on yourself. And really, it's, it's nothing to do with that. And you're putting so much pressure on yourself to sign of potentially support someone or see a positive change in that individual and if that doesn't kind of go to your plan then that is a sort of a sense of failure and actually it's not about what you what you have in your mind it's about what that individual needs and so it's really interesting that you brought that up again and also about kind of the unconscious reasons why people go into this sector it's kind of made me kind of think about gosh why did I why did I end up in kind of frontline roles before this and it's, it's really interesting to think about that yeah I mean I mean two points on that I think we were talking briefly you know um you, you know before we started you know that people often talk about non-engaging clients you know the the, the difficulty the frustration you know I've got a non-engaging client uh, it's not that you've got a non-engaging client, it's that you've got a client whose plan is completely different or their plan, their desire, what they want to do is, is different to yours um, or different to kind of what you think they should be doing or um, how you think they should be behaving. <laughs> so quite often there's just a sort of a, a, a sort of mismatch between what, what, the, what the worker is being told they should be doing or think they should be doing, what the client actually wants to do. So the challenge becomes how to find even the smallest part of overlap between our two plans where we can try and get some traction and some engagement in terms of something that we both agree is worthwhile doing. And quite often the challenge, I mean, especially working with very addicted clients, they, they often don't have much of a sense of a, a future, sometimes beyond the next day or sometimes beyond the next few hours. You know, whereas people who don't have that sort of, who aren't in that sort of situation and don't have that kind of background, are able to think, you know, a week's time, a month's time, a year's time, you know, this long-term planning. Often the clients aren't thinking uh, of planning ahead in that way at all, you know. So right there, you've got a very, very different kind of view of kind of what's going on and what needs to be done. And the other thing, which can be troubling for staff, is that um, many clients will seem to, or, or actually actively disrupt, um, disregard, or even attack um, attempts to help or receive, you know, or, or offer care or so on. And, and this can be really sort of muddling, especially for kind of people who are a bit new in the game. You know, they're kind of, well, I'm here to help, you know, and here's what, why, you know, why are you not turning up for this? Or um, why are you so, why do you seem to be actively sabotaging something at the last minute that we've been planning for weeks? And um, that can be difficult to understand without, um, without a bit of help to understand kind of why the client is, behaving in that way and I'm very much very much um, I'm very keen on trying to understand clients not as a homogenous group but clients who may have some similarities um, but actually quite often have specific needs or specific kind of um, biographies which lead them to behave in, in the ways that they do and so I think spaces and time um, to really try and understand um, the sort of individual behaviors and needs of clients is a really good thing to do with people because quite often you find that the information that, that you gather doing that you know can be applied with with other clients you know when you encounter them later on um, down the road you know yeah 
absolutely. So I guess taking it taking it back to kind of why why people end up working in the homeless sector and looking at it, you know, being quite values driven uh, for the reasons why people kind of go into this kind of work. How do you think that plays out in the way people deliver their work? Well, I, I think you know, in the way that in the way that I said um, before, that sometimes there's something something there uh, in the personality which unconsciously kind of requires repair or modification. I think that that can become what we'd call in the sort of the sort of psychoanalytic jargon. We call it sort of manic reparation in that there's a sort of mania um, in that you can't stop, that if you stop, something will fail or kind of, you know, that you just have to keep going, you know, it's a sort of endless, endless repetition. And so I think there's that which can lead to this sort of, this sort of drive. There can also be quite a strong sort of superego voice, you know, you're not doing enough, you must try harder, you know, keep doing it, it you're no good, you know, kind of keep up, you know, you're not cutting the mustard, there's, there's kind of that aspect. And that also kind of and that's the sort of internal sort of stuff but often um the sort of workplace itself is a very high performance culture like quite often there's a lot of demand you know you've got to see this many clients you've got to kind of do this sort of administration you've got to record it here you've got to record it there you've got to kind of you know you know so there's a sort of you know there's a sort of parallel between the sort of the workers superego which is saying you're not good enough try harder and the organizational superego, which is also saying you're not good enough, try harder. So you get these cultures of overperformance when no one's taking breaks, no one's going home on time, uh, people are coming in when they're sick. And of course, in a, on a sort of group level, if that's what everyone's doing, if you start not doing it, you know, you stand out like a sore thumb. I remember years ago, I joined a, I joined a new team. It was a nine to five role. And um at five o'clock, I turned my computer off. I was doing my notes. I turned my computer off and got up to leave. And the, the other sort of five people that were sitting in the office all looked up and went, oh, you're going <laughs> home, are you? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. You know, oh, you know. And so what I would say to people, and this is a sort of bit more of a practical thing, is I say to people, if you're not going home or if you're not taking your breaks or if you're, you, you know, you're not having your lunch or whatever, well, okay, on an individual level, that might be your choice, but you're also deauthorizing your colleagues. You're also kind of giving out a message and you're contributing to a culture where no one can do that. So it's really, really important, particularly that managers and leaders kind of model that kind of, you know, actually boundary type behavior. Because we all say that we do it, we all say it's important, and, you know, do we actually do it? So there's thinking about it and there's talking about it, but there's also actually doing it the practice of doing it and yeah. i do think you have to practice it as well you know it's like anything else you have to you have to make it a discipline um, i think as a i think as a manager though um viewing it from that point of um actually what your role modeling to your staff who you're probably often telling to go home at a certain time and it's it kind of um it, it gives you a different way of feeling about it mm. um mm. that you're doing it for someone else yeah rather than for yourself yeah yeah there can also be there can also be a, i think also depending sort of who and where there can also be a bit of a bit of bravado a bit of um i don't want to, it's a very sort of gender term machismo isn't it but you know but there can also be a bit of a kind of like you know i'm the sort of person we're the sort of people that 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 go hard you know uh, you know yeah. uh, and i think that's quite that's very seductive 
you know, and it's very seductive, you know, whilst you're able to do it and if you're keeping it up, but it, it's, you know, it's when it starts to break down, it's when it starts to fail, it, you know, it, it's not great for you. And, and one of the things we know about resilience, you know, the ability to sort of carry on going hard is to some degree, it depends on what's going on in the rest of your life. And so if you're going through a sort of horrible divorce or if you've not been well or kind of, you know, or if running's your thing and you've got an injury and you can't run or, you know, your mum's got dementia or, you know, things are really impacting on you from that. Or if you've kind of, you know, been repeatedly traumatised by things that have happened at work and you've not had adequate time to recover all the support around it that you need, then your sort of capacity and your resilience goes down and you're much more vulnerable because now you're now you're sort of diminished in terms of your resilience and your capacity, but you're still in this very fast flowing kind of um, culture of performance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that point, you know, you're vulnerable, you can really start to struggle. And if you add in things like shift work, late nights, early mornings onto that yeah. as well, um, yeah, you can yeah, just see yeah. the ability, the capacity for kind of burnout is yeah well shift work alone takes about a decade off your life expectancy i mean it literally um, it's really bad for you um, yeah. yeah i think yeah what we've been saying really resonates with me it's just I, I keep thinking back to previous roles and thinking how yeah i would definitely kind of push my boundaries because of that feeling to i need to do more and more and more on a personal level and organizational level and it's just that constant like i'm not doing enough um and that kind of links into that have I failed? All this kind of kind of a circle, of, a cycle of this feeling. But it's interesting you're saying about kind of outreach and stuff um, and how potentially sort of different roles really impact kind of your boundaries. So with, with outreach, there isn't there isn't that kind of physical boundary um, that you can have in different kind of roles. So it'd be interesting maybe chat about that. I know, Joe, you've worked in outreach before. Um, so it'd be good to get your kind of opinion on, yeah, make trying to maintain those boundaries whilst being an outreach worker yeah yeah and there's, there's different tribes i think i mean outreach outreach tend to be sort of outlaws in some ways you know they're quite sort of you know they like you know highly individualistic you know quite often got a, and there's a sort of anti-authoritarian sort of part of the personality which we find all over this sort of sector you know which is sort of fighting a system in a way um again you know that'll be kind of rooted in early life experiences and and um in the ways in which we've kind of internalized models of authority but yeah outreach workers you know out there you know um you know doing it on their own getting quick results making things happen you know very assertive confident often you know quite a different different type to kind of people that perhaps work in long-stay hostels you know who are really building long-term relationships they really value that kind of getting to know a client on a much more sort of deeper intimate level and um yeah a, a sort of a sort of different set of coordinates yeah and, and you know we talk about the sort of burnout as this sort of spectacular kind of um you, you know like a sort of fireworks sort of blazing and fizzling out and, but i think there's also a sort of I, I think in some ways that does happen but quite often people are sort of only realize that they've burnt out kind of afterwards when they're looking back or kind of you know after they've sort of got through a sort of period of, of really struggling it's quite often not that visible you know when you're experiencing it yourself so i think it's a bit uh the terminology sort of you know doesn't sort of sort of hides that in a way but the other thing i sometimes think about is rusting out so a sort of much less dramatic process where you've just been in the same place for a long time and there's very little change 
And what happens is people just get demotivated. They lose their empathy for the clients and they become demotivated, less interested. They find the job easy. It's too easy. So rather with the sort of high level burnout where um, where anxiety and stress is, is too high, you know, and you start to fail. If it's too low, you get demotivated and, and disinterested and then performance goes down. And if you do that for a long time with performance going down, you also lose confidence. So you don't feel that you could work somewhere else or get a promotion. So you just stay sort of stuck in this system, sort of gradually rusting out, you know, um, and you become less less able to connect to the clients and colleagues. And, and in both situations, you know, there's sort of behavioural kind of consequences, you know. And so, I, you know, I've, I've worked in teams where outreach workers have been, you know, using hard drugs themselves you know kind of going places and doing things that they that they really shouldn't be doing um, that you'd expect to see the clients doing much more so you sort of end up with an over identification with the clients and, and their behavior and less of an identification with their professional role and so this is and because it's a bit of a sort of edgy kind of role anyway you know and there's an enjoyment to that there's a sort of hazard there whereas in the kind of sort of rusting out sort of hostile type thing you tend to get a more sort of um neglectful kind of behavior sort of you know the sort of sloping off a bit early or kind of uh, not really doing a room check quick knock on the door without even stopping or kind of, you know there's a different set of kind of um sort of downsides or, or sort of negative consequences to those sorts of things. but i still think it's i still think we can see all of that under the sort of blanket term of burnout it's what happens when you're not properly supported resourced boundaried um all the rest of it one reflection I have as having done outreach for for a long time is um how much you feel like you're you're on the edge of even the homelessness sector mm. you're kind of battling to get your people into services it I think it's probably different now um because there are there's a much kind of more political directive I suppose to get mm. to get people off and off the streets and whilst that was always there it always felt like it was a battle still and yeah. um, so you do really feel like you're you're on your own you're fighting this fight on your own might just be me but I saw that kind yeah. of behavior and mentality um in others um yeah 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 I sort of see it as sort of um I sort of see it as as frontline staff being sort of messengers from the system or messengers from the inside. So a lot of our work is about trying to wave at people or call at people across this line and say, come from the outside onto the inside, you know, in its mm -hmm. most simple way. This is why I quite like things like even just having a Christmas tree in a hostel. It's like that's an inside activity. That's what normal people do, normal people. But I think it becomes more complicated when you're a messenger from the system and you're walking up to the line and meeting the client literally face to face when your own relationship with that system is perhaps ambivalent or, or not clear or or a bit challenged you know because lots of us are representing systems that we might not completely believe in or agree with ourselves so there's as we walk with these messages towards the clients there's an ambivalence um in mm -hmm. us about what we're bringing and, and you know i think we saw this in covid with you know vaccinations and so on you know in the early days when there was a really slow uptake from sort of bane communities and so on well I, you know the vaccination was a message from a system 
And it was a system that had not necessarily served those people well and had not um, engendered trust, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of, well, why do we want, you know, to actually, and, you know, this is the boundary of the body, isn't it? You know, that's what a vaccination mm -hmm. is. It breaches, the, breaches the, the boundary of the body. So, you know, I think we can think about boundaries, you know, psychological, physical, environmental. We need to think about boundaries as a, in, its, in its widest sense. Can I go back to something you said right at the beginning, Ben, because yeah. I think it's quite um, topical. So you talked about um, uh, the unconscious drivers, why people might end up in this work. And yeah. I was thinking about the kind of cu current narrative around why would people go into care work and nursing work when they could go and work at Tesco's for the same amount of money? And, and I wondered <laughs> if, well, obviously, there's, I wouldn't, I would choose probably support work over Tesco's um, unless I was I was literally couldn't afford to live. And I just wondered whether that that's why perhaps people's financial boundaries have been breached. They've allowed not or they haven't kind of um, fought for what their financial boundary needed to be. And so the wages have been cut and cut because we've got significant problems in our sector around pay terms yeah. and conditions. Mm -hmm. And is the fact that people feel they're, they're doing this for other reasons they're not doing it for financial yeah. reasons yeah 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 I think that's absolutely right um but I mean but people who work at Tesco's will also have unconscious reasons why why they're working at Tesco's yeah. they'll, they'll just be a different they'll be a different I mean that is that's ubiquitous everyone will no one just lands anywhere completely randomly that is a scary thought but you know that's that's what I believe you know mm -hmm. our unconscious is always scanning to find ways of representing itself in the real world if you like you know so it, it's it's always present you know we don't know what yeah. it's up to we don't know what it's up to most of the time but but it's always present but I yeah. do you think when you're saying about the um the financial boundaries I think that's important so there's a there's a psychological model for looking at personality called the big five model, um, which lots of people know. It's quite sort of trendy in a way in the, mo in the moment, which is um, stands for uh, openness, openness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And, and there's one more, which I can't quite remember. Conscientiousness. Yeah, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And... What you find a lot in people that do care work or uh, related fields or so on is they're very high in openness, they're very high in agreeableness, and they're very high in conscientiousness. And this means they're always saying yes to things, and they're always, because they're agreeable, they always say, yes, I'll do a bit more, and oh, okay, no, I don't need any more money, and okay, I suppose that's enough for now. Um, and yes, I'll do a bit of work for that team um, as well as my own. And, and, and what it, you know, and what it boils down to, because people who are low in agreeableness, these are not sort of value judgments. Good, uh, high agreeableness is good. Low agreeable because people who are low in agreeableness are people that will say, "No, I'm not doing it. No, I haven't got time to go to that meeting. Um, no, I'm not going to um, take an extra four cases." And so, and this is, I mean. When you hear people talking about gender pay gap and so on, I mean, there's all sorts of elements to that. But one thing that some people have looked at in studies is that men tend to be much lower in agreeableness. Um, and so they'll go and kind of fight for pay rises or they won't accept certain working conditions. And I mean, I don't want to get into that because it's a, it's a big 
topic, you know, but that's that's one part of it which has been looked at. But, you know, but in terms of boundaries, you know, just saying no, you know, is an enormous takeaway. Being able to actually say, no, I can't do that. I haven't got time. Yeah. Um, or, or no, no, I'm not going to do that because, you know, the wages haven't been increased for, for five years or whatever it is. And, you know, there's, there's I know organisations at the moment that are looking at strike action and, and they're finding it really hard to recruit. I mean, roles that used to have 20, 30 applications, they're getting four or five applications from people that don't even have what they need to get through to interview at the moment. And, and you know, when I talk to people about why that is, they say it's the pay. You know, the clients that they're working for have more money and better accommodation than they do. And I think psychologically, that's very, very difficult for staff to kind of square in their own minds. Yeah, yeah. I think what you said about kind of the ability to say no, um, I think that's something I really struggle with massively, is that, you know, if if I say no, uh, actually, I don't have time to do that. That's kind of admission of failure in a way. Um, you know, I've obviously, I've, you know, I haven't spent my time wisely or I haven't managed to organise my workload. And so I will say yes. And yes, then I will take on too much. So it's really interesting uh, that you said about that. I was like, mm, yeah, I really, I really do struggle to say no. And I think probably a lot of people do. I'm just thinking potentially we could maybe touch on um, kind of how to reorganise our boundaries as well. So We've, we've said there's many kind of different elements of, of, of boundaries, the, the physical, the psychological, etc. But and often these are kind of breached. These boundaries are there. Yeah, we, we push them. So is there a way that we can reorganize these boundaries to kind of, you know, ensure our own well-being? Yeah, um, I think there I think there is. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of different ways to think about it. And I do think it's different for, for different people. Um, as I said before, I think we can think about our physical boundaries, um, the boundary of the body, what, what we what we put into it, that kind of thing, you know, very simply. Um, and the first sort of the sort of foundation of kind of resilience really is is our bodies. And, you know, um, uh, you know, are we, you know, the time boundary, you know, when do we go to sleep? When do we wake up? What are we eating? Um, those kinds of things, you know, are actually really important and often really, really overlooked. Um, again, we all know we should be doing it. We all say we should be doing it. You know, what do we actually do? So I think we can look at it there. The boundary of how we arrive at work and how we leave, I think, is very important. You know, what we do, you know, do we take time? Are we sort of present? You know, um, are we thoughtful or are we just, you know, crashing straight into kind of, you know, whatever? I think the way we leave is particularly important. There's, I did some work with a psychologist called Mike Drayton, who's written a book about burnout and resilience, and, and he, he did a lot of research. And I think part, and part, of, part of what he was looking at is a really good book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, who's actually a sort of, um, a sort of a digital like tech, tech person um, who's written, written really interesting stuff about work. But what one of the conclusions he came to is one of the most important things you can do to reduce the risk of burnout is make a really clearly delineated um, transition between finishing work and what you do after work, and that it should be disciplined and conscious and ritualized. And so it's the same every day and you make a really quite big deal of doing it so that you can really kind of switch your mindset and, and, and the way you are from one to another. I used to work with her. I still work with her, actually. I've known her for years. Really, really brilliant manager. 
And she told me years ago, she said, Ben, for me, when I walk out of the building, I get into my car, I sit in the seat, and it's the sound and the motion of slamming that car door. And as soon as it's slammed, work is gone. And my focus is on my family. And, and over the years, sometimes she's told me, oh, it's not working anymore, you know, but, um, <laughs> but she had, you know, but other people have told me, you know, it's getting into my Lycra gear and it's the cycle home. And on that, on that, on the way home, I kind of drop everything. And also, I mean, slightly, slightly less healthily, he also told me that he quite often liked getting into a couple of rows with motorists as well to sort of burn, <laughs> off, burn off a bit of the accumulated aggression and frustration of the day. <laughs> um, I, I used to... Oh, go I, I used to um, have a job where I was out and about all over London um, working mm. with a caseload of um, really long-term street homeless people. And um, I was on my own. So there was no kind of like, and there was no physical boundary. There was no kind of ritual. And I had a conversation with my manager at the time and we agreed I, every day I had to walk across a bridge to a train station uh -huh, and uh -huh. he said right halfway across that bridge that's where you go oh, from yes, work. Yeah. and it was so it was such a good um ritual um but I wonder what how what this means for people who are home working and how hard it is um which you know a lot of people in the, in the sector aren't home workers but there are yeah. a lot are, and how hard it is to kind of separate work and home yeah no it's a real problem I during the lockdown um uh, there were um, countless examples of this, but there was a woman I knew who was doing a really, really difficult, um, really difficult work, sort of coordinating different services. And she was living in a studio. So literally the bed that she woke up in and went to sleep in was in the same room as the as the laptop that she was doing all her work on. And um, yeah, she ended off, she went, she was went off sick for a couple of months. She just, you know, crumpled really, she couldn't mm. deal with it. And I think that's right. And so, it, but again, I think the same thing applies it's finding a ritualized, um, repeatable, ritualized kind of um, method um, of doing that every day, which you maintain as a strict discipline. And so we heard a bit about, you know, some people were putting their home workers, putting their commutes back into the day. Mm -hmm. So they get up, you know, get changed, uh, get up, or whatever, cycle around the block, come back, get into their work clothes, start work, you know, and then at the end, you know, repeat it. So, I mean... I mean, that's not for everyone, obviously, but um, I think, you know, really think, I think what happens is people become quite, I mean, not to sound horrible, I don't mean it like this, but a bit mindless, you know, it's not thought about consciously, it's not, um, it's not really built in in a conscious way. You know, in a, I, I quite like, you know, in those sort of old movies where you see people and they worked in old factories and they had a card that they had to clock in, they go, you know, and clock yeah. a kind of thing and like, really clear, isn't it? You know, it's like, there's work there's not work um and i wanted to joe just i mean coming back to what you said before about saying no as well hmm. um i think what sometimes gets missed is it if you're saying yes at work you know all the time you're quite often saying no to someone else you know in a way whether it's your kids that you don't see before bedtime or it's your partner that you've got literally zero empathy and patience left for you know at the end of the week because you've you've given it all out and in, in the client system you know so i think sometimes if you're if you're saying yes in one place you're kind of effectively saying no in another place you know you know that is yeah that is so true <laughs> i think because of the amount of times i've said yes i'll get home and then yeah have zero energy to have any kind of 
conversation um, or do any kind of social activity because I've said yes all day and haven't allowed myself kind of time to breathe. Which is the deregulation, which is so you can have high arousal at work, really high, you know, but um, and you can you can keep that up, you know, but you it's got to be matched by deregulation on the other on the other side of the curve. And that's why, you know, and, and that's, again, something that people have to figure out for themselves how that works. But again, very driven people, people with a, a, a strong superego and all the rest of it, you know, you can easily get into sort of work hard, play hard kind of mentality. And I don't necessarily just mean, you know, with, with drinking or, or that kind of stuff, but even kind of, you know, gym, running, you know, um, other sort of activities. If you're just high arousal all the time and you're never deregulating, then, you know, you're, you're, you're more at risk, really. You're more vulnerable. Um, yeah. Um, I, unfortunately, I think that's all we have time for. Um, but thank you so much, Ben, and thank you, Joe, for chatting today. It's been so interesting to think about kind of how hard it can be to keep boundaries whilst working in this sector, but ultimately the importance of keeping them for our own well-being. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. To keep up to date with the latest goings on at Homeless Link, please follow us on Twitter at Homeless Link. If you're interested in training and development opportunities for yourself, your team or your organisation, get in touch by emailing training at homelesslink.org.uk. We have a range of courses that help staff and organisations develop the skills needed to tackle current issues and improve services.